Kalavoinen, wicked wizard, grasps the handle of his broadsword, asks the blade this simple question. Tell me, O my blade of honor, dost thou wish to drink my lifeblood, drink the blood of Kalavoinen? Thus his trusty sword makes answer, well divining his intentions. Why should I not drink thy lifeblood, blood of guilty Kalavoinen? Since I feast upon the worthy, drink the lifeblood of the righteous. Thereupon the youth Kalervo, wicked wizard of the Northland, lifts the mighty sword of Uko, bids adieu to earth and heaven, firmly thrust the hilt in heather. To his heart he points the weapon, throws his weight upon the broadsword, pouring out his wicked lifeblood ere be journeys to Manala. Thus the wizard finds destruction, this the end of Kalavoinen, born in sin and nursed in folly. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And what you just heard was an excerpt from Rune 35 of the Finnish epic, The Kalevala, as translated by John Martin Crawford in 1888. Uh, it's a famous scene from the text um, that has been depicted in art. You'll find depictions of it in public statues. Uh, there was one that I, I was able to pull up here for us, uh, Joe, for our notes, uh, where you see this uh, very stoic, very grim-looking figure standing there gripping the, the blade of his sword, not the, not the hilt, but the actual blade of it as he, he contemplates deep, dark thoughts. Now, as for the things that are draped over his midsection, is this just sort of straps or from the pelt that have tassels like a scarf might have? Or are those the paws of what was a bear skin with the, the claws still on them? They To me, they look like the the claws of an animal skin. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but, but the way they're wrapped around him, it looks like he's being hugged from behind by a very flattened bear. It's kind of like <laughs> reaching down onto his thighs in a funny mm-hmm. looking way. Now, the, the Kalevaya, for anyone who's not familiar with this is the, the national epic of Finland, a 19th century work based on, um, on, on, on Karelin and uh, Finnish folklore and mythology concerning the creation of the world, the exploits of heroes and villains, as well as the magical Sampo. So this has been, this has been tr- uh, uh, given the, the cinematic treatment a few different times over the years, and I know we've, we've heard from listeners of, about some of those depictions and about just the, uh, the epic itself. I, I myself have have yet to, to read it in full, but I have to say after this um, this little cold open reading here, I really like the cadence of it. I like the cadence of this translation, so uh, perhaps I'll, I'll dive back in at some point. Yeah, it's on my mental list as well. But so what's going on in the scene that you read? Okay, so this scene in question concerns the character uh, Kalervo, uh, who of course is also referred to as uh, Kalavoinen in this uh, this this particular uh, translation. And he's a tragic and doomed character. Uh, he has this, and he's having this conversation with the unnamed but clearly sentient blade that he wields. Uh, there's an element of edifice to the character, though, and he's also something of a of a wizard. Obviously, he's described as an evil wizard. Uh, so uh, there's a lot going on here, but the interesting thing for our purposes is that the sword speaks. The sword seems to keep a history of itself. It knows what it has done. It knows who it has killed and the character of those that it has killed. Um, And uh, there's a sense that the blade has some sort of will of its own, even if in this case, it's more of a bloodthirsty indifference to whoever's blood it happens to spill. Is it like a kind of propaganda that justifies its own use? Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of makes sense, right? I mean, the sword, what does the sword want? Uh, well, in this case, the sword just wants to spill blood. It doesn't care if it's righteous blood. It doesn't care if it's evil blood. Uh, it just wants blood. Now, if this particular scene sounds familiar, uh, you know, it is clearly echoed in the famous uh, Is This a Dagger, which I see before me, monologue from William Shakespeare's Macbeth. And I've also read that Hamlet, too, was at least in part inspired uh, by this, this, uh, this Finnish tale, these Finnish legends. Um, 
of course, in Macbeth, the dagger does not answer the doomed king. Um, he's just speaking to it. He's just, uh, you know, he's kind of making it the, the focus of his monologue. Uh, but there is an interesting history of speaking swords in myth and legend. And of course, this also spills over into the existence of various speaking weapons in fiction. Um, one of the most notable, at least for me, would would be the the sentient weapons of Dungeons and Dragons, particularly the sword Black Razor, which has been around in the the Dungeons and Dragons uh, lore for a while. Uh, but we should we should also mention some other, uh, perhaps um, less obvious examples of um, of intelligent weapons, uh, especially from the film Who Framed Roger Rabbit. I think these are actually parodies of old like Looney Tunes conventions. But there is a sword that sings in it, right? Right. It's kind of a Frank Sinatra, cartoon Frank Sinatra sword. Uh-huh. And um, uh, it's been a long time since I've seen Roger Rabbit. I remember the sword being fairly useless. Like it seemed more interested in singing and crooning uh, as opposed to being a proper stabbing implement. And again, it had a will mm-hmm. all its own. What if there was a sword who just wanted to dance? Uh, but but the other thing is, I, I remember in this movie, there are like sentient bullets. Like, uh, uh, what, what's his name? Uh Bob Hoskins gets out a, a bunch of bullets to put in his gun, and they're cartoon, like, uh, Old West cowboy bullets. And they're, they're, <laughs> one talks like a prospector. Yeah, I'd completely forgotten about this till you shared a, an image with me. I, I think at least one of the bullets is Pipper from Final Sacrifice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I can, I, it's been, like, again, it's been a long time since I've seen it, but looking at this still, I can, I can hear that stereotypical, like, prospector voice. Yeah. So in this episode, we're going to discuss some examples of speaking swords from myth and legend and literature and maybe get into what it all means to a certain extent. Now, the idea of a weapon that has a mind of its own and can even talk and and talk to its bearer, uh, it it goes very far back, even farther back than Kalevala. In fact, it goes to the, uh, the civilizations of ancient Mesopotamia and their myths. Yeah, because this is, and this is one that's not just an old example. It's just it's an example that checks off all the boxes of what you want to find in a sentient weapon. It is uh, Sharur, the talking mace, which was a weapon that was wielded by the hero god Ninurta. So this would have been of uh, Sumerian and then I think later Babylonian mythology. Yeah, and um, and like a lot of those gods, I think his his trajectory kind of changes course over time. He's a he was at least initially a god of spring thunder showers and a protector of agriculture. I've also seen him uh, written about as as being more connected with the sun, and then in later traditions, more of like a warrior god. Um, and then he's there are there are there are also some some pretty famous depictions of him. There's a like. A, if you just go to like a Wikipedia page about ancient Sumerian uh, legend, you're likely to see this image of Ninurta with with thunderbolts pursuing this winged demon Anzu, um, uh, who has stolen the tablets of destiny. Uh, it's a pretty famous image. Yeah, and like so much of that uh, great old Mesopotamian art, you get this kind of side view of the characters, right? They're they're mm-hmm. in profile as they're striding forward, and um, Ninurta has absolutely fabulous calf muscles. Yes, and in this image, he has the, he has thunderbolts, but um, th- this other weapon is associated with him in some of the the old old writings, and this is this is again Sharur, the Smasher of Thousands. And it is a mace. Uh, and uh, I'm going to have a, a short artifact episode coming up, I think, uh, next week that gets into this a little bit. But uh, just getting into the idea of, like, why a mace? What is it, is it about a mace uh, that would have been important in ancient warfare? And, and basically it comes down to the fact that, yeah, if you were fighting people that did not have metal helmets, a mace was just an absolutely devastating weapon to have. It became a symbol of authority in many different cultures, and therefore it's exactly the sort of thing that— a, a, a powerful deity would wield against monstrous enemies. I think of the mace as being very prominently displayed in some some quite memorable ancient Egyptian art, for example, on mm-hmm. the Narmer palette, which uh, shows, of course, you know, the pharaoh clutching the head of the conquered enemy and raising the mace in the other hand. Uh, it's sort of a, an image of total dominance. Yeah, yeah. The, apparently, the mace was a symbol of of Egyptian power for a very long time because for for the longest, their armies only fought enemies with no armor or helmets, and so the the mace was just a dominant weapon to wield. Now, as as far as Sharur goes, this was no typical mace. This was a weapon that could speak. 
It could fly across vast distances and even take on the form of a winged lion. Uh, as uh, Abraham uh, Ammon points out in the Monster Hunter's Handbook, the, the weapon was capable of smashing enemies either on its own or in the hands of Ninurta. And it also rained fire and venom down on its enemies and allowed the hero god to slay this terrifying demon, Azog, uh, the one that we just described from that, uh, that illustration. Wow. So, but of course, us just talking about it, you know, doesn't doesn't really give it justice. You gotta you gotta go to the poetry, or at least translations of the poetry. And in the Sumerian poem uh, Ninurta's exploits, uh, yeah, there's a lot of just beautiful, violent language about our hero's use of the mace. He's said to pound Asag's body as if it were barley. Uh, and, oh, like in a mill, or yeah, uh, in a, like a mortar and pestle. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, like he's not going to just knock down the monster and and you know, act like it's a Friday the 13th movie. Oh, is the enemy dead? I don't know. No, he's going to go over and pound that enemy into the ground with this mace. In fact, such is the power of Shahur that the condition of the slain demon's body is compared to that of a ship wrecked by a tidal wave. That's a demon you can make bread out of. Yeah. Or pasta. <laughs> yeah. Now, Ninurta's exploits, um, a translation of it is available online, and there are little bits of it that are, you know, that, that are just lost. Uh, but it's well worth looking up and reading through because it has all this awesome uh, battle language in it. But I want to read just a few quotes from it that drive home mostly this idea of the weapon as being the sentient speaking thing. Okay. Quote, at that moment, the Lord's battle mace looked towards the mountains and Shaur cried out aloud to its master. And then there's another passage. Hero, beware, it said concernedly. The weapon embraced him whom it loved. The Shaur addressed Lord Ninurta. Quote, the weapon, its heart, was reassured. It slapped its thighs. The Shaur began to run. It entered the rebel lands. Joyfully, it reported the message to Lord Ninurta. And then, there, oh, this one's great. The Shaur made the storm wind rise to heaven, scattered the people like, and then there's a, there's a fragment that's lost. It tore. Its venom alone destroyed the townspeople. The destructive mace set fire to the mountains. The murderous weapon smashed skulls with its painful teeth. The club which tears out entrails gnashed its teeth. The lance was stuck into the ground and the crevices filled with blood. In the rebel lands, dogs licked it up like milk. The enemy rose up, crying to wife and child, You did not lift your arms in prayer to Lord Ninurta. The weapon covered the mountains with dust, but did not shake the heart of Azog. The Shaur threw its arms around the neck of the Lord. All right, so this is a, a mace, a weapon that not only talks, not only uh, cries aloud to its beloved master, but it also hugs its beloved master. Yeah, this is a weapon that's not going to turn on you. This is not a weapon where you're going to be like, is where you, you ask it, "Hey, are things pretty bad?" And the weapon's like, "Yeah, it's pretty bad. You should, you, know, you should follow me." Uh, no, this is a mace that stands by you. Now, doesn't this weapon also essentially function as a long-range surveillance device, reporting information back to its bearer from a distance? Yeah, it is. Um, it is an extremely overpowered weapon. Uh, it's befitting of a, of a god hero. Uh, but yeah, we're, we're based on these passages and others, there's this idea that it will fly ahead, it will report back, it will fly into battle on its own, but it can also, you know, very much be wielded as a traditional um, weapon by, um, uh, by Ninurta. Uh, so it, it does all of these things. It also has these, these powers of, of venom and fire. It's just absolutely powerful. I think we're in Batman territory here. Right? This is kind of like overpowered in the way Batman's gadgets are that he just has gadgets that like there's no reason he should have. Yeah. And and this one just yeah, this does everything. You could imagine it's almost as if like later traditions were like this is great, but let's tone it down a little bit because I don't know if people are, are going to believe it. But I like I say it 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 it's it's amazing. It's an amazing weapon. Sharer has shark repellent properties. That's right. Batman did have shark repellent. Yeah. Just carried it around just in case. Now, when it comes to uh, to speaking weapons uh, in other traditions, uh, we have to pay special attention to to Irish myth and legend because it seems it seems a really good place to uh, to spend some time, not only for the tales themselves, but because it's an area where we have some some pretty solid papers written on the history of it all. In mm. particular, I was looking at Gary R. Varner's "The Sword and Dagger in Myth and Legend" from 2012. 
and omens, ordeals, and oracles on demons and weapons in early Irish texts from 1999 by Jacqueline Borsch. Now, Varner points out that Irish swords were said to retain a memory of the acts committed with the weapon, and a warrior would swear by these weapons, but also could be rebuked by the sword if they did not speak true. Uh, and, and apparently this could take a couple of different forms. The weapon might simply fail for the hero at an important moment in battle, uh, but it might also speak and curse them for their false trophies. Hmm, this is interesting, the idea of being um, accepted or rebuked by a weapon. It makes me think of Excalibur, which in yeah. which I uh, do not think I, – I, I was looking around for uh, evidence of stories where Excalibur speaks, and I didn't find any – but Excalibur does certainly look for its rightful owner and uh, and and rebukes people who try to wield it without the right to do so. Yeah, and of course J.R.R. Tolkien was was obviously a uh, an admirer of many of these myth cycles that uh, mm-hmm. that we're discussing here. So you see a lot of this reflected in say the behavior of the One Ring, the idea that it it chooses who wears it and who wields it, and it might leave you if it has decided that it uh, it, it no longer believes in you. Right. I'm done with the seal door. No more. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so you see that in some of these these accounts. You know, it's not, uh, you know, it, it'll ultimately be like, okay, the, the, the hero has failed and the weapon has abandoned them at a crucial moment. Cue that Taylor Swift breakup song. <laughs> now, an example cited by Borscht can be found in The Sickbed of Cuchulain. Uh Now, this is a, a character that we've discussed on the show before. This is the Irish hero uh, who I, I believe we did a whole episode where we talked about one of his special weapons that may or may not be related to um, uh, the biological properties of the stingray. Oh, yeah, that's right. I do recall that episode maybe being one of our most difficult uh, pronunciation adventures of all time. Uh, yeah, gl- yeah. Globe trotting as we do with our clumsy tongues, but uh, uh, but that one was also a lot of fun. Uh, th- those myths are awesome. I remember the warp spasm, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cucullin is a is a fascinating character, and and I, I hope I'm saying it appropriately here because <laughs> I've heard it said both way, like Cucullin and Cuchulain, and yeah. we had a whole lot of uh, of Irish listeners write in and um, and weigh in on this topic. <laughs> so here we are once again. We're trying, um, folks. <laughs> yeah, uh, but in an early scene, uh, speaking of clumsy tongues, uh, the warriors bring forth the tongues of their enemies, though some have embellished their trophies with the tongues of cows. And so the warriors swear with their swords on their thighs. And here's a quote from it. For their swords used to turn against them when they would declare a false victory. That is right, for demons used to speak to them from their weapons, so that their weapons were thus guarantees for them. I'm not sure I understand the causality of this sentence. Let's see. So the demons used to speak to them for their weapons so that their weapons were thus guarantees for them, meaning that the demons speaking from the weapons would would let you know whether what the warrior said was true or not. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And of course, the, now the whole idea, the whole use of the word demon, we'll get into that in a bit, because, of mm-hmm. course, that obviously smacks of, um, of of later, you know, Christian era uh, writers making sense of of older beliefs and traditions by attributing them to demons as opposed to, you know, uh, spirits or deities that would have made sense within the actual uh, traditions and religion of those peoples. Right, sure. So there are a lot of things from the ancient world where uh, where there's a story or a text that has a word that means something like spirits or gods or something, but Christian mm-hmm. writers might translate it as demons. Yeah. Now, a specific example of talking weapons that, that Borscht brings up is made in The Battle of Mag uh, Trueda. Uh, this is an Irish epic about the battles fought by the Tuatha Dudanen uh, against the first the, the, the Fear Bolg and then against the monstrous Fomorians. So these are like the, the, the Tuatha Dudanen. These are like the, the, the fairy folk of old. They're kind of like the, yeah, I guess you could compare them to like the high elves, like they were a you know a mm. warrior, a magical warrior people, and then these enemies were you know, mostly monsters. Quote: Now in that battle, Ogma, the champion, found Oma, the sword of Tethra, king of the Fomorians. Ogma unsheathed the sword and cleaned it. Then the sword told what had been done by it, because it was the habit of swords at that time to recount the deeds that had been done by them whenever they were unsheathed. And for that reason, swords were entitled to the tribute of cleaning after they have been unsheathed. Moreover, spells have been kept in swords from that time on. 
Now, the reason why demons used to speak from weapons then is that weapons used to be worshipped by men and were among the sureties of that time. Whoa, several interesting things going on there. Yeah. So uh, I like the idea that that swords being empowered to speak about the, the deeds that had been done with them is in a way presented as an incentive for the care and maintenance of your sword. Yeah. And for that reason, swords are entitled to the tribute of cleaning after they've been mm. unsheathed. Uh, but, it, I mean, it also seems just like cleaning a sword is important for maintaining the sword, like keeping it useful. Uh, right. So this seems perhaps like one of those myths that, that may have a, a sort of practical origin. Yeah. And then, of course, at the end, this bit about, well, people used to, men used to worship their swords. That also kind of smacks of what we were talking about earlier, as does the use of the word demons. And again, we'll come back to that shortly. But here's another bit. This one is from the cattle raid of Cooley, and this concerns our, uh, our hero, uh, Kukulin, once again. Quote, then he put on his head his crested war helmet of battle and strife and conflict. From it was uttered the shout of a hundred warriors with a long drawn out cry from every corner and angle of it. For they're used to cry from it like, and then there are a few different um, uh, like old Irish cries, which I will not try to repeat here, uh, you know, j- just in case. I don't know. I don't know what the translation is. It might anger the, the, the warriors of old. Um, <laughs> Quote, and demons of the air before him and above him and around him wherever he went, prophesizing the shedding of the blood of warriors and champions. Now, obviously, this is a helm as opposed to a weapon, but still it contains a record and it sort of speaks. Now, if it's saying here, though, that it's not just recalling a record of the past, but it uses the word prophesying, which makes mm-hmm. me think that it's speaking of the future or is this yeah. just a, a version of prophesying that speaks of the past? Um, I, I think we are getting into to divination here a bit because as um, as we'll touch on on later, you also see the the idea of the sword as this kind of focus of divination in many different cultures. Now, here's another account of uh, of weapons doing battle on their own, kind of like uh, our our ancient Sumerian example of, uh, from earlier, and this is from the uh, the death of Maladrin Macdemacron, sometimes the violent death. Uh, and it contains a passage about a spear that would leap into battle on its own and require tribute. Mm. Um, uh, actually, I don't have the exact quote from that, but but that's the, the that's just the sum uh, the summarizing of what occurs. Uh, but then in the Mesca Ulad, there's a description uh, not only of Kukulin leaping into battle, but his weapons are described as leaping into battle as well. Um, like as if like by his side, as if by their own will, like they're not just things that he brings with him into weapon. They're not just tools of war. They were, they are kind of like companions. Yeah. And then in the destruction of Dadurga's hostel, there's a living lance called Luin, which I think I'm, I, Borsch says it just means the lance. Uh, but Borsch writes, when this lance is ready to shed blood, it has to be quenched regularly in a cauldron with poison. Otherwise, the lance will catch fire. Used in battle, this weapon is extremely dangerous. Whoa. <laughs> So basically, Borsch summarizes that, yeah, weapons are guarantees for truth about battle deeds of the past. Um, we see this, this idea, this hint of them being able to prophesize the, the future even. Uh, weapons mm-hmm. know what has been done with them. And there's also this idea of, of other beings speaking through them. Now, and then, of course, we've used the word demon uh, already. Now, um, obviously, you don't have to know much about about Christian histories of pre-Christian times to know that the ways and beliefs of the old days are often recast as blasphemy or worse. And in this case, the idea of men worshiping their weapons or, or, or of demons speaking to them through the sword clearly smack of this. Now, where Borsch ultimately lands on this issue is that, is that the term demons may simply be a summarization of the infernal deities or furies, Alecto, uh, Tisephone, uh, uh, Megara, uh, as well as the war goddess uh, Bellona. Now, these are Greek and Roman goddesses. Um, and this, you know, again, gets with the history of translating and reinterpreting these stories. Uh, but the Irish war goddess is, of course, the Morrigan who we, I believe we talked about in our, uh, well, we talked about uh, the Morrigan in the, the Phantom Morgana episode. Mm, okay. So sometimes she is an individual, and other times, though, she is a triad of the war goddesses um, uh, Badab, uh, Macha, and Nemain. Now, in early Irish texts, uh, Borst says that the Morrigan is sometimes equated with the monstrous uh, Lamia, or also, or also equated with Lilith, 
and relegated to the underworld. So there's you know this this continuing tradition of this. Um, but uh, but I want to read this uh, this this quote here from the text. She writes. Quote, this survey from the Tain shows the war goddesses appear in battle contexts in which they utter ominous, terrifying, and inciting shouts, just like the battle creatures from part two, uh, part in part two earlier in this document, she's referring to demonic creatures inhabiting weapons and shouting therefrom at the height of the fight. Uh, she continues, the battle creatures are sometimes referred to in the same context, and they are somewhat closer to the sword demons of, um, of uh, Sergleji Kankulan, and that they too are directly connected with weapons. The connection is more indirect in the case of the war goddesses. The most striking example is the is the armgrith, this is the clamor of arms, caused by an attack by a war goddess. But this is less similar than the shouts from weapons and armor. However, what brings the war goddesses closer to the uh, oracular utterances of the sword demons are their prophetic words in battle contexts. This prophetical function of the war goddesses is not only found in the Tain, but also in other early Irish texts. Interesting. Okay, so this, this does come back to the uh, the the divinatory or oracular properties you alluded to. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like the, the sword is a thing that um, that kind of stands outside of time. It's connected mm-hmm. to all the deaths before it, and it's connected to all the deaths ahead of it. Or d- the sword stands outside of time, or something that speaks through the sword stands yeah. outside of time. Yeah, yeah. Like the sword is almost like a like a it's a radio for talking to God. It's a you know it's like a, a conduit in a way. Yeah, yeah. Now uh, outside of actually speaking swords, the use of swords and other blades in divination practices is pretty widespread. Um, I was looking around for some some interesting specific examples. Uh, I ran across a few from Asia that were that were pretty pretty neat. Uh, we see this in Korean divination and some Korean divination practices. This was discussed by Yung Yong Lee in Korean uh, shamanistic rituals from 1981. Uh, the primary focus is on Korean shamanism or Mu Dang, and there's a they discuss that there's a variety of double edged Korean sword known as a Giom that is sometimes used in divination. Uh, as well as a as a Korean variation of the three-edged spear or trident. Hmm. Uh, I'm also to understand that swords were sometimes a part of a traditional divination kit for some Thai communities in Vietnam, according to a Thai divination kit in the Vietnam Museum of uh, Ethnology by Vivan An from the Vietnam Museum of Ethnology. And there are, of course, numerous examples of ritual daggers and blades used in various practices that either are uh, you know, um, objectively divination practices or could be interpreted as having divinational um, aspects to them. Uh, and we even see it carried on as a symbol in the likes of uh, of tarot. The thing about tarot actually kind of reminds me of, um, of, of the Egyptian art that we were talking about earlier, mm-hmm. because they're both examples of this thing you see very commonly, which is that weapons are very often... Um, inanimate objects that are infused with lots of meaning they're they're charged with uh, you know their symbols in a way or their signs that yeah. uh, that that point to all these different concepts and they they seem to have great stakes and import yeah absolutely i was and i was thinking a bit about about this like what you know what does all of this mean and um i guess i was reminded in part by that uh, that that quote from the simpsons where homer talks about how it feels when he holds a gun that is like how God must feel when he holds a gun, <laughs> which is a ridiculous <laughs> quote. But but I think, you know, does get to a, to a truth. There's something about, in this case, holding, a, say, a sword or a dagger, especially mm-hmm. one with a violent history, that it does have the ability to induce a certain kind of thinking or feeling. You know, we hold it. And in holding it, we update our body schema to include this weapon. It becomes a part of us, a part of our body. And so, too, to a certain extent, does its history and its purpose, you know? Um, there's just, some, yeah, just something about holding, holding a tool. And in this case, that tool would be, say, a sword or a, or a mace. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'd imagine that the same way we, we've talked about how driving a car changes your relationship to other people while you're in yeah. you know, So you're operating a car... You don't really see other people the same way you would if you were just standing next to them on the sidewalk. You know, they, they might start to become slightly less people-like and more kind of like irritating obstacle-like. Or, you know, the, something about seeing them through the windshield maybe makes them less significant. 
And, you know, you got to wonder about, like, holding a, a deadly weapon or maybe something that maybe not only could be used as a weapon, but is definitely forged to be a highly effective killing tool. Uh, does that also sort of change your relationship to people around you while you're holding it? Yeah. So, so it makes me wonder, you know, to a certain extent, some of what we're discussing here, it's like the, the fantastic and the legendary, the mythic and the magical reverberations of, of something that... A, all of us or even or maybe just a lot of us can sense if we we hold that weapon or even just like see that way like it's for me I, th- I always find it interesting to see some of these like these really old weapons well preserved and in some cases they were purely ceremonial uh, in museums uh, you know just just looking at them and, and thinking about you know what they are and how long they've been around Now, another way of looking at this subject is not to emphasize the weaponness, but just to think about these stories as stories of an inanimate object or tool of some kind that has a mind and speaks and has a will of its own. In other words, that it is an inanimate object that has the properties of an agent. And this is a subject we've talked about a number of times on the show before, but I I was trying to think about like what this might represent in the psychological context. So I found a paper that I wanted to talk about briefly. Uh, This is by uh, Amanda Hanks Johnson and Justin Barrett, published in the Journal of Cognition and Culture in the year 2003, called The Role of Control in Attributing Intentional Agency to Inanimate Objects. And so one of the authors here, uh, it's worth noting, is Justin Barrett, who is a psychologist who's written a lot of interesting things about the psychology of religion. He was actually the author of that paper we covered a couple years ago about whether or not Santa Claus should be thought of as a god. Oh, wow. That was an awesome paper. Yeah. Uh, Recall Barrett's conclusion on Santa Claus was uh, basically not quite a god, but very, very close. He had like five criteria that (laughs) gods seem to have in common, and he said that Santa Claus in some contexts, I think had all five of them, but these criteria were sort of inconsistently applied to him. So very, very close. But uh, anyway, in in this study, the authors wanted to look at the phenomenon of attributing agency to inanimate objects. So when you regard an object, like say a mace or a sword, for example, as if it had the qualities of a person, such as a mind with goals and intentional behavior, and this would uh, this would include flying into battle on its own, or, uh, or or speaking, or something like that. What causes us to start thinking about inanimate objects as if they were intentional agents? Uh, And so they start off talking about some factors that were revealed by pre-existing research. One of the things they talk about is the concept of an agency detection device. This is a sort of hypothetical uh, module of the human brain that is often invoked as one possible factor contributing to the origins of supernatural and religious beliefs. Of course, all you know, speculation like that into the, the, the deep evolutionary psychology of humankind is, is highly speculative, but it seems at least like a plausible idea worth exploring that, um, that essentially there is a selection bias on the human brain in favor of uh, when given an ambiguous stimuli, like you see something vaguely moving, to lean toward assuming that it is an agent with the ability to act on its own intentions rather than just a physical object being stirred by the wind because it's uh, you know it's more cautious to assume it's an agent agents are more dangerous and you need to be more ready to guard against their behavior mm. and of course agents would include not just humans but also animals but this study itself has less to do with uh, with possible psychological explanations for the origins of religion and is more just about what people do in the moment, how they spontaneously uh, speak as if they were attributing agency to clearly inanimate objects like ball bearings. Now, previous research had showed that people regularly participate in agent attribution, even with objects as simple as two-dimensional geometric shapes on a display. Uh, so, so these other studies had shown that people will talk about objects like a triangle on a screen and talk about them as if they have characteristics such as beliefs, <laughs> desires or goals, emotional states, and genders. And one of the major factors established by this previous research is the importance of movement in, in creating these types of uh, attributions. And it's also not just any movement – 
Uh, these studies found that we are especially likely to attribute agency to objects that move in what the authors here would call non-inertial paths without being contacted. Uh, and this is sometimes equated to movement that appears to be in a goal-directed manner. So non-inertial paths means uh, that you know, if you see a stone rolling down a hill, just following what would be the, the obvious apparent course of gravity, you're much less likely to attribute agency to that stone than you would to a stone that just suddenly rolls in one direction on a flat surface without any apparent cause. So that seems pretty intuitive, right? Like we're we're less likely to start wondering if something is an agent if we just see it apparently obeying the laws of physics. If something moves in a way where we can't clearly see a physical cause for it to move that way outside of itself, then we start thinking like, whoa, is that thing alive? Mm. But then the authors here looked at another feature beyond just non-inertial pathways of movement, and that feature is the control of the observer. So what they did here to test this was they used an experimental setup where participants were recorded describing their actions out loud while they tried to move a number of metal ball bearings around on a surface, like a tabletop. And underneath that surface, there were electromagnets that could be turned on and off that could influence the path of the balls and how the balls moved around on this table. So the two conditions of the experiment were, you had one condition where participants had direct control over the magnets. They had a switch or switches that they could switch on and off that were tied to a light that would go on and off when the magnets were activated and deactivated. So they were controlling the method by which the paths of the balls were diverted. And then you had another uh, condition where the participants were moving the balls around, but they had no perception of control over the magnets. Instead, an experimenter was turning the magnets on and off. And the results were in line with the author's hypothesis. A greater number of participants in the no control condition, the one where they could not control what the magnets were doing, a greater number of them spontaneously made statements attributing mind-like agency to the balls compared to the condition where people could control the magnets. And so what were the, the spontaneous statements people made that attributed agency it would be things like um, like relational expressions. So, for example, apologizing to the balls. Uh, one quote is, oops, sorry, ball. Uh, <laughs> sometimes naming the balls. To quote from the, the study here, describing a relationship with the marbles in terms that are literally appropriate only for animals and people, but not physical objects such as marbles, e.g., quote, and a couple of ones did not like me. Um, and then a couple of the other ones were statements about the ball bearings, like uh, uh, having desires, like, oh, look, those two are kissing, or that one didn't want to stay there, or saying that the balls are fighting each other. <laughs> so the results would seem to back up the idea that we are more likely to spontaneously attribute agency to inanimate objects, not just when they move in non-inertial paths, but also when they do so in ways that we understand to be outside of our direct control or outside the direct control of a human agent such as ourselves. W one interesting side note is that while a greater number of members of the no control group made at least one agency attribution statement, if you were to just count up the numbers of statements, one participant in the in-control group actually went hog wild, making tons of statements, including naming some of the marbles. Uh, the, <laughs> this uh, one participant is where you get the person who started calling one of the ball bearings Bob. <laughs> the most common types of agency attributions across all conditions were people ascribing desires and dispositions to the to the marbles, such as wanting or liking. Uh, and so the study did support the author's hypothesis that, that objects moving beyond our control are more likely to be seen as agents. But one thing that I thought was interesting was they actually recorded less spontaneous agency attribution overall than a number of previous studies. Uh, for example, the ones using geometric shapes displayed on a screen. Mm -hmm. And they, they tried to talk about why that was. They say, quote, Perhaps the representational character of the animated displays introduces bias that contributes to the willingness of participants to attribute beliefs, desires, and personality traits to geometric shapes. 
at least adult observers understand that images in motion pictures often represent intentional agents. Further, while the shapes in the displays certainly do not have beliefs or desires, intentional agents who do have beliefs and desires orchestrate their movements. Perhaps these conceptual factors of the displays contribute to the attribution of agency in animated displays. But there was one more section I wanted to read that, that I thought was interesting, where they were trying to explain what could be going on uh, and, and relating this to, to ecologically valid everyday experiences of people attributing agency to inanimate objects. And, and this relates to the condition, once again, of control over these objects. They write, quote, The suggestion is that we treat cars and computers as intentional agents not only because of their perceptual features or self-propelledness. Indeed, we berate our cars when they, quote, refuse to move and not when they do move. Rather, it is when objects' action violates our own sense of causal efficacy that we attribute agency to them. When the computer either does something I did not ask it to do or does not do something I asked it to do, it's then that I remark that it is angry with me. Feelings of frustration are the consequence of lacking control. Feeling that it is no longer my agency that accounts for what I perceive, but some other agency that I cannot control." And this was interesting because it made me think about possible origins of, of people, especially looking to uh, weapons used in battle mm -hmm. as something that, that has a mind of its own or could speak of its own accord. Because I could imagine that violent struggle is is a time when you are especially prone probably to frustrations with the physical workings of your tools, like, you know, when when you're swinging a sword or a mace in battle and it doesn't do exactly what you wanted it to do, that seems like one of the most irritating possible situations where that could happen, right? So you might be especially prone then to think this thing has a mind of its own and it is actually an agent in some way. Yeah, the, the sword has decided that I'm not worthy to wield it and that is why it, it seems to fail me suddenly. Yeah, and, and this also, I think, comes into the old idea of, like, uh, trial by combat, you know, mm -hmm. so uh, people are very familiar with trial by combat from Game of Thrones these days. But, like, it is an actual ancient practice, and one of the things that uh, is often assumed about trial by combat is that trial by combat reveals the will of the gods, mm -hmm. that there is, you know, that there is divine intervention that reaches in and controls whose weapons and armor and all that uh, get the better of the other one, and thus the truth is shown not by who has the strongest warrior, but by which side the gods intervene on behalf of. Now, one thing that comes to mind in all of this, uh, you know, taking taking into account all of this and comparing it to the weapons too, is I'm well. First of all, I'm imagining like the warrior psyche during the height of battle. I mean, obviously, that's going to be a situation where you're dealing with a lot of. Uh, I mean, there's there's, a, there's probably a flow state going on to some degree in some cases. It's also a highly uh, energized and traumatic time, um, which is going to have its own psychological effect. But also, I'm thinking if you if you're dealing especially with a professional warrior, uh, a warrior who is um, who is skilled with their weapon, who has say run drills with their weapon, is uh, to, to them the use of this sword or this mace is just second nature. Um, it makes me think of the the, the sometimes perceptible disconnect between will in the mind and movement in the body. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if that could at times help nurture this idea that sometimes it is not me who is, who is, who is striking out with the sword. Sometimes it is the sword striking out and I am just following it, you know? Yeah. That's really interesting. That lines up with what I'm saying. Um, though there's a contradiction here worth exploring, which is that, um, so if there is any truth whatsoever to us, you know, speculating that that maybe uh, maybe it's because of extreme frustration with, you know, a, a sword or a mace not doing exactly what you want it to do when you, you swing it in a fight uh, that causes people to to infuse it with the idea of agency and think this has a this has a mind of its own. This would kind of go against a lot of the stories which are about weapons not uh, failing in battle, but having these really special awesome powers, like mm -hmm. doing more than you want, doing doing what you want beyond what you can make it do with your hands. Well, I wonder in that, I mean, it, it's easy to look back on these accounts and think of, 
you know, think of any type of actual human that could have, you know, been a part of, say, the, the Kukulin myth. Mm-hmm. Um, and just imagine, well, this was a, a bloodthirsty professional warrior who, you know, never looked back and reflected on the deeds they performed on the battlefield. But on the other hand, I wonder if, you know, what if that's not the case? What if you have characters mm-hmm. like this? I mean, really, in Kukulin, we also see this idea of the warp spasm, the idea that he becomes something out of control on the battlefield, you know? So, so maybe there is this, maybe there, in some cases, there is this sense that like, okay, after the battle, when you're reflecting on what you did, uh, perhaps there are moments within that battle that, that are in conflict with what you think about as your nature. And, and maybe that allows you to lean into this idea of the weapon, uh, having this empowering or even willful, uh, uh, property to it. Oh, maybe like a, what you think is the is the gods or what you think is like, you know, the divine Taz or something is, is actually adrenaline. Yeah. And, and maybe like a disconnect, too, with just sort of the state of mind, like the, the, the reflective mind and the, um, you know, the reactive mind of, 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 of a pure combat situation. Where at the time, yeah, it just makes sense to just keep pounding the enemy into the dirt with your mace. And then afterwards, you're like, oh, that was a bit much. Uh, why did I just not stop pounding their skull into the dust? Um, uh, that doesn't seem like me. I don't know. But this is this is mere speculation on my part. Sure. But even outside of combat, I mean, there are times even in the, you know, the, the, the non-combatant's life where reflexes will at times seem to come from beyond us. You know, I could think of mm-hmm. like a time where. Uh, my, my son, who was a toddler at the time, he like, he falls off of a, a ladder, uh, on, on some stairs and my arm just shoots out and grabs his leg in mid fall, you know, mm-hmm. which, um, and at the time I'm like, oh, wow, I'm already holding him. I already caught him. Like it did not seem like a willful act, like, oh, he's falling. I better catch him. It's just, you just react, you know? Yeah. And if one is given to interpret that, in, in in a supernatural way, you know, you might think, well, you know, this is this was God working through me. This was some angel or demon taking control of my arm and doing this deed that seemed to occur outside of my 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 actual willful cognition. It is amazing, and another in, uh, amazing way to interpret it is the the physical way, which is like your brain did that, and then your consciousness had to catch up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, that is the you know the, the, the truth of the matter, and. Uh, I think that's the one thing I do want to drive home about all of this is that like all of these explanations within the human psyche and within the human body, I think are the most amazing. And that's even if you get into, you know, some of the, the, the more controversial hypotheses, like, you know, the, the bicameral mind, which I think there are a lot of fun applications for that uh, when we're looking at this topic. But uh, I, I also see interpretations of some of these mythic weapons as like, oh, well, obviously this was ancient aliens. Obviously oh, no. the mace that flew across the battlefield and reported back, this was some sort of alien technology that the ancient Sumerians acquired. Um, you know, I, I mean, yes, if you're being very... If, if you're willing to go that way, you can, I guess you can explain things away that uh, in, in that regard. But I, I feel like you're you're missing the, where the true wonder lies. You know, you're missing the, the where the true magic is. And that is in the complex way that we interact with objects and enter and, and contemplate our own actions. Well, yeah. And also, I would just say, like, there is no particular reason to conclude ancient aliens. Like, there is no yeah. <laughs> evidence for it. And there's like, no, there's no circumstance that demands it as a conclusion. So it's just yeah. uh, so you could equally just say, like, well, maybe it was time travelers. I mean, you, know, you can't <laughs> rule it out, but there's no particular reason to think that's true. Yeah. Um, uh, but, you know, the other thing that I often harp on on the show is that we enjoy looking for possible uh, physical circumstances and scientific explanations that could give rise to, you know, experiences people had or things people witnessed that could serve as the inspiration for mythological concepts uh, like talking weapons or weapons with, an, uh, with a mind of their own. But also, uh, I've said this a million times, there's also just human creativity. I mean, sometimes yeah. people just come up with stories. Like, it doesn't necessarily have to be that somebody saw something happen or had an experience themselves that felt like they were holding a weapon that was alive and had a mind of its own. That that could have happened, and that would be really interesting along the lines we've been talking about. But there, you also don't have to assume that. I mean, we, we know from the modern era, a lot of times people just come up with cool and strange creative ideas. Yeah. And the thing about like a lot of these these sci-fi ideas that, again, some people are, are, 
are more inclined to take a, a modern sci-fi concept and apply it backwards in time as an explanation, as an actual like real-world explanation for what, say, uh, you know, the, that fantastic mace of Ninurta was. Uh, where in reality, like the, the modern sci-fi fantasy is perhaps better understood as a as a reverberation from the original trope you know mm-hmm. like this is yeah. just a continuation in the fantastic uh, imaginative way of thinking that has been around for a long time. It is not, you know, this is, this is the thing that came before. Uh, the, 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 the flying club that turns into a lion and, and, and catches mountains on fire, that is the thing that helps explain our modern uh, science fiction dreams, not the other way around. You know, the, an interesting thing about that is that somebody might come back at you and say, well, but science fiction, while having these same tropes, is based on technology, which makes it more plausible. Um, yeah. And, and I guess you could say that, but uh, but it also strikes me is that a wonderful way of framing that is that the course of human history and scientific and technological development is reality catching up with myths. Yeah, yeah. Though I, I would I, I, I do have to point out too that like a mace is technology. You know, oh, yeah, like sure. like any idea of a, of a, of a magical mace or a magical sword, those those are technological stories as well. That's a deadly simple machine. I, th- I believe a mace counts as a lever. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and close the book on this, but we'd love to hear from everybody. We'd love to hear your thoughts on um, on what we discussed here, but also examples of sentient or possibly sentient weapons from other uh, myths and legends, as well as science fiction and, and fantasy treatments as well. Uh, now, now, one thing I do want to mention here, we opened with a rather dark reading from the Kalevala. So I wanted to stress this. If you're troubled by suicidal thoughts, uh, you are not alone. And a sympathetic ear is only a phone call away. In the United States, consider calling the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-8255. You can also visit the website, which is suicidepreventionlifeline.org. And for additional resources tailored toward general and specific needs, such as those of youth, disaster survivors, Native Americans, Americans, veterans, lost survivors, LGBTQIA, uh, and attempt survivors, you'll find a list of international uh, suicide hotlines at suicide.org. Um, and then you can go to the International Suicide Hotline section of that website. Big thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us, as always, at contact at stuff to blow your mind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.